a circus athlete earned a living by performing astonishing feats of strength and uh, his show would always conclude with a simple yet very impressive demonstration of his ability to squeeze an orange completely dry. After the completed his act, he would always then challenge someone from the audience to produce anyone who could extract just one drop of juice from the already crushed and devoured orange. It's been probably 10 years he's been doing this, and not a single person up to this point has been able to extract just one drop out of the shredded, already squeezed orange. On one particular occasion, when he challenged the audience to produce someone who would dare to try to squeeze a drop of orange juice out of this crushed orange, a petite-figured woman stepped out of the audience and volunteered to meet the challenge. She was so tiny in comparison to the strong man that the audience sort of began to snicker, if not laugh, to the point where everyone there, including the petite lady, could hear the snickers and the laughter. Undaunted, the petite woman stepped into the ring, took the orange that had already been shredded to almost nothing by the strong man in his last demonstration of, of strength, took her position as she sort of grabbed the orange and placed her feet like this and buckled her shoulders back, and the audience was in anticipation to see what this little petite woman could do. And as she proceeded to squeeze, to the excitement, if not the horror, of the strong man, a drop began to develop at the bottom of her, of her fist here, and a drop hit the bottom, hit the floor, and the place came unglued. They all gave the lady a standing ovation for her incredible demonstration of strength. It was so overwhelming, in fact, that the man just didn't know what to say. So finally, when the audience stopped applauding and cheering the lady, he turned to her and he said, Ma'am, how in the world is such a petite, small-figured woman like you able to develop such amazing strength? She said, without batting an eye, Oh, there's nothing to it. I just happen to be the treasurer at the local Baptist church. <laughs> Think about that for a minute. You know, we've been, <laughs> we have been known around here as our staff to be able to squeeze more out of a penny than anybody else. I've been here almost seven years as your pastor, and we have been under some financial um, stress. It was here before I got here, and, and uh, we have been able to squeeze more ministry out of a penny than anything else. And our staff has learned to make more out of nothing than any staff I've ever served on. As a matter of fact, when David Harper left here to go down to South, uh, South Texas, you know that other place down there, he, uh, he continued to talk about how uh, they were lavish in expenses, and he's already been able to squeeze more out of what they have than what they're used to, and they're beginning to feel uncomfortable. As a matter of fact, when I came, there was a man on our staff that had the reputation and the nickname Dr. No, not K-N-O-W, but N-O for no. And uh, we've been able to be able to do more with less than any other time, any other place I've ever served. And God has been faithful, and you have been faithful. And today is the day that we conclude, basically, our Greater Things campaign. And I know some of you are thinking, well, he's going to talk about money today. Well, I'm going to set you at ease today. Turn to your neighbor and say, he's not going to talk about money, so relax. Now, I've been here seven years, and in the seven years I've been here, I have yet to preach a single message on the subject of money. Can I get an amen to that? All right. Now, I know some pastors, every time they get up, they talk about money. But I'm not after your money, and God is not after your money. 
What God is after is exactly the word that's on your screen. Everything. God is after everything. Not just your money. And those of us who have a hang-up with money need to learn and to realize that as I become a follower of Christ, I give him my everything. And that includes money, but it includes more than that. It includes my life. It includes my time. It includes my talent. It includes everything. And we are today going to look at an example of someone who gave everything and going to be challenged to give God our very best. So I'm going to invite you to stand with me, and we're going to look at Mark chapter 12. We're going to read verse 41 through verse 44 together. On your screen, Mark 12, verse 41 through verse 44. Follow along with me, if you would, during the, as I read the ESV, the English Standard Version of this text, according to the Gospel of Mark. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which made a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all of those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. Father, I pray that as we study this text today, as we open your infallible and holy word, that your spirit that prevails in this place, because we're here, you reside in us through your Holy Spirit, would give us the insights and the illumination that we need to be able to understand the commitment that we need to make as your disciples. For some of us in here this morning, when we committed our hearts and lives to Christ, we didn't commit our everything. We thought we could take some things with us. But the commitment to follow you demands and deserves our everything. That means we don't come with a clenched fist. We come with an open hand and an open heart and an open mind to be led by you. And I pray, God, that in the text that we're going to be studying today, the various passages, that you would instill within us the desire to give to you in accordance to how you gave unto us. And I pray that you would inspire, encourage, and equip us today in the enablement and the empowerment of your spirit to give our everything. Because we have, and you know our tendency, God, is to, to grasp, to clench, to hold on to, and not to release our everything to you. So help us understand what it means to deny self, take up the cross, and to follow you. For I ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. Please be seated. You know, I looked up Palm Sunday, and some of us are probably wondering that uh, why are we doing something on Palm Sunday like some other churches are? Well, we're going to talk about it a little bit in our intro because I learned and discovered if you do any historical analysis or review on the internet, it's a good place to do research. You find that during the fourth century in Jerusalem, that's 400 years after Christ died, in Jerusalem, they began to celebrate what we call Palm Sunday today. And it's been kind of a tradition for the church to do that. You see, it's the beginning of the week just prior to what many call Holy Week. And the reason it's holy is because this is the week when all the, the elements and all the activities begin to unfold that eventually lead Christ to his crucifixion and his death. And many churches celebrate a lot of things throughout this week. And maybe one of these days we might try that sometime, uh, you know, just to see how it works for us. But uh, 
Palm Sunday is an interesting Sunday, and, and you see how today we kind of celebrate it when the children came by and they, they waved the palm branches, and uh, that was always kind of a neat touch. We like to do that, and the children like to participate. But it kind of reminds us of the Sunday, that first day of the week, in which Jesus got on a donkey and rode through the narrow streets of Jerusalem just before his crucifixion. That was a significant day. It was a day in which the prophecy was being fulfilled in Jeremiah 9.9 because Jeremiah prophesied years earlier that the Messiah would enter into Jerusalem and declare himself of the Messiah and the people would celebrate his kingship. And that's exactly what they did. And as Jesus mounted that donkey, he went through the narrow streets of Jerusalem. If you've ever been to Jerusalem, they're a very narrow road. I mean, they're narrow streets. And uh, they were putting down palm branches, and some were putting down their cloaks. And Jesus was riding a donkey as a victorious king, announcing peace. Because you see, when an emperor or king rode on a donkey through the streets of his city, he was announcing peace to the people. And that's what Jesus was doing. He was announcing, number one, that not only was he the Messiah, but as the Messiah, he was going to establish peace between God's people and God. Between the people and God. And he came to offer and he came to give peace. In other words, he came to reconcile us in our relationship to God. And the reason why we need reconciliation, all of us who have heard of evangelism and we've studied evangelism and we've studied these passages before, we know that Romans 3.23 says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All of us in here have one thing in common. We're all sinners. Turn to your neighbor and say, okay, confess your sin right now. I'm ready to listen. We're all sinners. That means you have either done something that God said you should not do, or you have failed to do what God expects you or desires or deserves that you do. You see, there are sins of omission and and sins of commission, ones that he wants us to do that we don't do and things that we shouldn't do that we've done. We've all sinned and we've all fallen short of the standard of the glory of God. And because of that, Romans 6.23 says the wage of that sin is eternal separation from God. The wage of sin is death, not only spiritual death, not only physical death, but eternal death in a place reserved for those who are sinners, what the Bible calls hell. But you see in John 3.16, in our passage this morning, as we take a look at the slide, it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whosoever believeth in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. Notice that God reached down in our depravity, in our sinful condition. We did not have peace with God, and he reached down, and he gave us the most incredible, the most amazing gift of all. And it was a gift that was given not solely because of our condition, but because of his love for us. For God so loved the world that he what? He gave. At the heart of the character of God is not only a loving God, but a very giving God. And the reason he gave his one and only son is because he loves you and he cares about you. And because he was motivated by that love and our condition, he gave his one and only son. We learn that not only did God give, but Christ volunteered for the assignment. Imagine that. Christ volunteering up in heaven as they were discussing about the plan that God was going to instill on the earth when Christ was born of a virgin and would eventually die on a cross. Jesus said, I volunteer, I will go. Why did he do that? Because I, like you, Father, demonstrate your characteristics. I will love and I do love the people and because of that I will give. Notice it says in Galatians 1, 3 through 5, grace and peace 
to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from this present evil age, according to the will of God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. We see here that Christ and the Father, the triune God, loves us, and because they love us, they gave. And aren't you glad they gave? And we find in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, that those of us who belong to the Father should demonstrate and should display the same characteristics as the Father and as the Son. Notice he says in Ephesians 5, 1 and 2, it says, Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly beloved children, and live a life of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. Be imitators of God. The word imitators is a word in which we get our word mimic. Now, I remember when I was a kid, we used to mimic each other, you know, especially when we were children, just to annoy the other sibling. And I can hear my brother or my sister saying, Mommy, make Charlie quit it. Make him quit it. Because they do something, I do it. And they do something, I do it. And it'd get on their nerves. Anybody remember doing that? Sure you do. Well, God says to us that we are to mimic the characteristics of the Father. That means that we are to display and to demonstrate the same characteristics that the Father and the Son have, we are to demonstrate as well. So if he's a loving, gracious, giving God, then we are to imitate that characteristic and be loving and be gracious and be giving. We are to mimic, we are to imitate We are to represent, we are to demonstrate the same characteristics of God. In other words, we are to give as God gave. And at the heart of the gospel is the word give. For without the gift, we would not have the gospel. And at the heart of every believer is giving. From the very foundation of the very beginning of the church, when Jesus came and established his kingdom, remember, he came to establish and enlarge his kingdom. And he did that primarily through men and women who would place their faith and trust in him as their Savior and Lord. From the very foundation of his church, as he came to establish and enlarge his kingdom, he always, always challenged his disciples to give their very best, to give their everything. Matter of fact, if they weren't willing to give their everything, they could not become his disciples. You find, first of all, the example in Luke chapter 5. In our next slide, we see in Luke chapter 5, verse 11, we see a beautiful story in Luke 5, beginning with verse 1 where Jesus is being pressed up by the people. He's been teaching the people, and they are, the crowds are so large that they're pushing him back, and he's up against the Sea of Galilee, and there's nowhere to go. And so he looks over here, and he sees some men tending their nets. And he turns to Simon Peter and said, Hey, Simon, I'd like to borrow your boat. I want to use it as a platform to teach the people. And reluctantly, I think Simon Peter agrees, and he pushes out, and Jesus continues then teaching the people, giving somewhat of a buffer between himself and the people. And when he gets finished, he turns to Simon Peter and said, hey, let's go fishing. He gives him an invitation to go fishing. And Simon Peter puts up a protest, though. He said, man, I've been fishing all night long. I'm an expert fisherman, and uh, I've not caught anything all night long. The fish are simply not biting. They're eluding the nets. So it would be a waste of our time. Matter of fact, this isn't the time of day to fish. Jesus insists, and Simon Peter agrees, and they go out into the deep water, and as soon as he casts his net into the sea, what happens? The net's full. He has to invite others to come to help him get the fish out of the water and into the boats. And the Bible says the boat was so filled with fish, it was about to sink. 
And Simon Peter turns and he says, depart from me, Lord, I am a sinful man. It was Jesus turns to Simon Peter and says, from this moment on, you'll no longer fish for fish. From now on, you're going to fish for men. But notice his response to the invitation. So they pulled their boats up on shore, and what did they leave? They left everything and followed him. They left everything. They didn't leave some things. They left everything to follow him. Christ demanded and he deserves that his disciples leave everything. Not some things, but everything. Here we see Simon, Peter, and Andrew left everything and they followed Christ. Again in Luke chapter 5 at the end of the chapter, we see that there's a rich young ruler who comes to Jesus. And he throws himself, he runs and he throws himself at Jesus' feet. And he said, good teacher, what must I do to be saved? And Jesus says, what are you doing calling me good? There's only one good, and you know, and I know who that is. It's God. You've not called me God. you called me teacher. So here's the answer. Then go and fulfill the commandments. And he begins to list the commandments. It's interesting that Luke doesn't record that love, you know, don't put any other gods before me, but he talks about adultery and he talks about other things. And the young man looks up after Jesus gives him a sort of a, a smaller list, and he says, I've done those things from the very moment of my youth. And Jesus in his heart says, no, you haven't. He said, dude, what I want you to do then, if you, if you claim to do that, then go and sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and then come follow me. It's not that, that Jesus doesn't, that, that thinks money is the root of all evil. That's, that's not what it is. The Bible never says that. It says that money can lead us to evil. But Jesus is telling this one particular disciple who claims to love God and not have any other gods other than God, to go sell everything and follow him, and he can't do it. And it's interesting that Luke says that he was disheartened. He uses that word. The man was disheartened. His heart was crushed. His spirit was broken. He knew in his heart of hearts that he had not followed or fulfilled all of the commandments because he knew that he loved money more than he loved God, and he knew that he was a wealthy man, and there was no way in the world that he was going to sell everything, give it to the poor, and follow Christ. He was not going to do that, and he walks away. And Jesus turns to his disciples and he said, you know, it's hard for rich people to enter the kingdom of God. Matter of fact, it's so hard for rich people to enter the kingdom of God, he said, it's harder for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to go and to enter the kingdom of heaven. And when the disciples then turns and said, well, then who can be saved? Because you see, they believed that rich people had more blessing on them than poor people did. And if the rich people who had the greatest blessing from God can't enter to the kingdom, then who then can be saved? Because we're poor and therefore we don't have the favor of God like they do. And Jesus turned to them and said, with God, only with God it's possible, with man it's not. For all things are possible with God. And then notice what he says. He says in, uh, I'm sorry, in 1028, Peter said to him, we have left everything to follow you. Notice in 27 and 28 in Luke 5, he also says, after this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi. And sitting in his tax booth, he said, follow me. And Jesus said to him, and Levi got up and left everything to follow Christ. Here we have another example of Levi. And we have, we have Levi who, who is, is sitting there minding his own business in his tax booth. And then Jesus, after healing a paralytic and hearing, healing a leper, approaches Levi in the tax booth. Now, tax collectors were the most despised people of all. 
they were mostly considered crooks. Because, see, the only way that they could earn their living was to collect more than what Rome required so they could earn a living. And the more they could collect from people, the more they could keep. And he's sitting there collecting taxes, and, and he's collecting tariffs for Rome. And, and Jesus walks, walks up to this most despised of all people, and he invites him to follow me. And notice Levi got up, he left everything, and he followed Christ. He left everything, and he followed Christ. You know, that word keeps coming up about the disciples leaving everything. Everything. Matter of fact, in Mark chapter 8, verse 34 and 35, just a, an incident where the gospel sort of puts several things that Jesus said sort of in a succinct order. He says to his disciples, then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples, and he said, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. There's an aspect here of us denying ourselves and taking up our cross and following him. It's this call to leave everything to follow Jesus. And so we have a tendency, I think, sometimes when we hear messages about serving and about giving that, that, that people are after certain things, and I'm here to say that he's not after just a small portion or a large portion. He's after everything that we have to give, everything. We have a prime example of that in the ministry and the life of Jesus Notice in our passage that we read in Mark chapter 12, we see in this text that, that Jesus is in the temple in Mark 12. And he's taken a long time to talk about certain things with some religious elite and to set some examples as to what it means to, to love God and to follow himself as the Messiah. And there's been some debate and there's been some teaching that's been going on. And, and more than likely, Christ is tired and he's wanted to get away from the mob and away from the crowd because more than likely, inside of the temple, there's been a large crowd that have listened to Christ. And so he makes his way away from the crowd and he escapes and he goes into what we call the treasury. And notice what happens as he makes his way in Mark chapter 12, verse 41. Notice where Christ starts. He says, and he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box into the offering box. We see in Mark 12, he said, notice the place where he is. Give me, give me the next slide if you would. Notice it says in that text, he said, and he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. We see here that Christ is in a, a particular place. What place is he? He's in the temple. He's in a place that he belongs. Why does he belong there? Because he's Jesus. He is the Son of God, and as the Son of God, His Heavenly Father owns the temple. I mean, the temple belongs to His Father, and so He's in His rightful place. And in His Father's house, He goes to the treasury where people are coming in to worship God, and as they enter into the place of worship, they drop their offering along the wall there, and there are 13 places in which to put their offering. You know, we take up one offering here. How would you like to come to church and see in the foyer 13 different places in which to put your offering? And there was a place for the temple tax that everybody was required to give. And as they came into worship, they would slip their offerings in there. And Jesus made his way into the treasury that was there and, and along this wall. And he sat down in the place that is rightfully his to sit because he is the son of God. And his, he is in his father's house. Now, notice his presence is largely undetected by the people. 
I mean, he's been in a large crowd and he's done some teaching, but now he is away from the crowd and he's sitting in this place in the treasury and he's going virtually undetected. He's visible by them, but they don't see him. How many times has he been present when we've not seen him? But this is his physical presence. And people are coming in and they're in a hurry and they're on their way to worship and they're dropping in their offerings and Christ is sitting there sort of unnoticed and unobserved by the people. And the reason he's there is to watch the people. That's what the verse says. He's there to do what? He's there to watch the people. The word watch is an interesting word. It doesn't mean that he's just there to see them. He's there to observe them. It means that he's analyzing and evaluating people as they're coming in. He's seeing not only what they wear, but he's watching what they give, and he's watching how they give it. And he can not only see the exterior of, of all of that, but he can see the heart as well. He sees the heart. He sees past the, the camouflage and past the pretense and past the pompousness of some of the people, and he sees the intentions of the hearts of the people who are coming into the treasury, and they're dropping in their offerings. And they're walking by these 13 treasure chests next to these, these 13 beautiful columns who are there. And, and in Hebrew, there are certain different markings on them that indicate what offerings they're for. And one's for the temple tax. And he's watching the people drop in their offering. But notice the proximity of the people. He's very close to them. He's not a long way off. He's close enough to observe them and close enough to be seen. And his posture is one of not only sitting, but he's silent. He doesn't draw attention to himself. He doesn't say anything. He just sits there, and he's watching, and he's observing. Nothing goes unnoticed by him. Nothing. Uh, The all-seeing eye of Jesus in the treasury. How would you like for, in a moment as we conclude our service, to know that as you're dropping your offering in the offering plate, he sees Not just what you drop, but he sees the motives and the intentions of your heart. Kind of scary, isn't it? And notice we see where he starts there, but notice what does he see? What does he see? The scriptures are very plain. Mark tells us what he saw. He watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums, and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. He watched what was going on. It's interesting here that he watches people invest in kingdom work. While even then, like today, there are people who are contributing, who are giving of their tithes and their offerings to invest in the kingdom. And he's watching the people as they're entering into the place of worship. You didn't give after the place of worship. You gave before you even entered the place of worship. And as they're coming in to enter to the place of worship, they're dropping off their offerings. And and notice that he sees their investment. And there are two types of people that he sees. He sees the prosperous and he sees the poor. Now, there's no slam on the wealthy people virtually, but he does say that he sees the rich. These people are what you and I might call filthy rich. Anybody want to classify themselves as that today? Nobody? Filthy rich. I mean, these are the people that have more than what they could possibly use or spend in their lifetime. They're abundantly blessed by the Father, and they have an overabundance of financial wealth and prosperity. And they're walking into the place of worship decked out. Some of you are Easter going to be decked out, you know? And, uh, I mean, they're, they're there, and they're dropping their money into the treasury. 
They're selecting which ones they're going to put it in, and they drop it in there, and they walk away. But notice he describes the poor. And the people here that are being described as poor, these people are not like the filthy rich. They're really, 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 really poor. Anybody want to say I'm one of those? That's what I thought. Yeah. I mean, they're the people that can't afford to give. You can tell they're poor by what they're wearing. You can tell they're poor by the way they look on their face and the countenance of their appearance. You can tell just by watching when they're coming in, that person's a poor person. That person's a rich person. These were really, 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 really poor people. I want you to notice that both the rich and the poor contributed and invested in kingdom work. It's not about the amount. It's about the faithfulness. Or sometimes we have a tendency to say, let the rich carry the poor. And that's a cultural philosophy that's being propagated by our government today. It's a Robin Hood theory, and many in the church have adopted that, let the rich pay for the programs. But the responsibility to give is both to the prosperous and the poor. None of us are immune, and none of us can excuse ourselves from giving and contributing to the investing into the kingdom. And he saw those who invested. Now, notice the intentionality of the heart condition of those giving. We see the wealthy, they gave out of sufficiency, and the poor gave out of sacrifice. I mean, these rich people, they gave, and what they give didn't hurt them at all. It was not considered on Jesus' terms sacrificial at all. In other words, they dropped some money in the kitty, and they walked away, or they gave their offering, and they didn't even feel the pinch. They didn't even feel the stress of giving what they gave because back home they had plenty of savings, and they had plenty in their bank accounts. Their portfolio was large, and they had plenty of money to live on. They did give, but it didn't hurt them at all. It wasn't sacrificial. But here he sees that the poor, when they gave, they gave sacrificially because the widow here gave what? Everything she had. It cost her. It hurt her, not only financially, but it hurt her to give. It put a pinch on her budget. She didn't have money to go to the local Taco Bell to eat something after service that day. The rich and the poor both had a responsibility to give, but the difference is the heart. That's what he saw. He saw the prosperous come in, drop some money in, didn't affect him at all. He watched the poor come in, drop some money in, and he could sense the cost and the sacrifice in their hearts, what it gave. Well, notice what he shares with his disciples. You look in the text in verse 43, and he called to him and said to them, truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all of those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance but she put out of her poverty has put in everything she had all she had to live on she put in everything she had all she had to live on it's interesting to me that he he calls his disciples aside you know and 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 he's sitting there and he's observing what's going on and he has the presence to draw in his disciples. Because, you see, this is a conversation that he doesn't want to share with everyone just for his disciples. This is a lesson that he intends to give to his disciples. And, and I'm going to say something that may make some upset. But if you're here this morning, you're not a disciple of Jesus and you don't know Christ, 
when the offering plate comes by in a minute, don't give him anything. Seriously. Because you're giving with the wrong heart, wrong intention, wrong motives. Unless you're a disciple of Christ, you're not under any obligation to give to the church or to Christ or his kingdom work. None whatsoever. And so there's no reason to leave when the offering plate goes by. Because you're under no obligation because you're not a disciple of Christ. But for those who are disciples of Christ, there's a lesson here to his disciples. Jesus is intending to use what he has seen as an example, as a model, as a call to his disciples. This is how you should give. And if you're not a disciple today, this is not a message for you. So you're off the hook. Notice what he says. He then talks about the widow. He singles her out and says that she gave exemplary. What does he say about her giving? First of all, he says that her giving was, she gave generously. She gave generously. She gave more than the rest. Now, I know some of you may be accountants in here, and some of you may know how to count your money, but how in the world did she who only dropped maybe a fourth of a penny into the plate, into the offering, give as much as the rich people? You see, God has a different way of measuring our gifts. They're not under human measurement. They're not how we measure things humanly, not on this earth. She gave more than the wealthy. She gave with a generosity that equaled no one that gave as Jesus saw them giving. She gave generously. Secondly, she gave sacrificially. If you take a look at the text, the wealthy gave of their abundance, but she gave out of her poverty. When they gave, they gave and they placed it in the offering. They didn't feel the pinch at all of that gift. It didn't affect them at all. But with the lady, it affected everything. She gave a sacrifice. It literally cost her to put those two coins in the offering plate. So she gave sacrificially. She gave generously. Thirdly, she gave faithfully. I'm convinced wrapped in this text, you see that she gave out of faith and trust in God because she gave everything that she had. Everything. What, what motivates someone to give that way? It's not a pie in the sky. It's not some charismatic filling of the Holy Spirit. She gave, I think, completely out of trust and faith in God that God would supply and God would meet her needs. She gave out of faith and trust in God, that God, who is the one who supplies her need. The rich people were convinced, just like the rich young ruler we talked about earlier, uh, he couldn't give because, you know, he put his trust in his finances. He put his trust in his portfolio. He put his trust in what he could earn himself. But the lady... She understood that what comes from heaven, what she enjoys, comes from God. And that all things come from the Father. So therefore, I'm going to completely just trust the Lord. And I'm going to give as he commands me to give. And I'm just going to just trust him. But notice, she trusted completely. Completely, wholeheartedly. Without reservation, she gave, it says, everything she had. She gave everything she had to live on. Some of you say, well, that's, that's pretty ignorant. Now, what about stowing something away for a rainy day? What about your portfolio? What about your savings? What about this and what about that? She didn't have all that to worry about. Had somebody told me one time that they would prefer to know wealthy people than to be wealthy. And I asked them, why is that? So, well, wealthy people worry about their money. If you know people who are wealthy... 
you can access their money, but don't have to worry about the wealth. You know, we don't have to worry because this lady didn't worry. And if we put our faith and our trust in the Lord of lords and King of kings, he will provide for our needs if we just simply trust him. So here we've seen what he's, where he starts, what he sees, what he shares. What is Christ seeking from his disciples? What is Christ seeking from his disciples? There are five aspects about giving that he expects from his disciples. First of all, he expects scriptural giving. Scriptural giving. And there are some who would have us to believe that tithing is an old school, Old Testament thing and that it doesn't apply to today. Or there were some who say, well, tithing is about tithing on your investments, not on your earned income. I don't find that anywhere in here. Please show me if you believe that. The temple tax was on everyone, including the priests. And if you read Malachi 3, God was upset that even the priests were robbing from God. So even as a pastor, I'm not excluded from the principles of Scripture in giving, nor are you. All of us are commanded to give. The rich and the poor, the prosperous and the poor, all of us have a responsibility to biblically follow the standard and the precepts that God has given us. So the tithe is not a question, the offerings are not a question. Now, all of us, regardless of where we are economically or socially on this economic ladder that we live in in America, all of us have responsibility to be stewards of giving to God what is rightfully his. There's a spiritual aspect about giving for disciples as well. But the spiritual aspect is that we need to guard our motives. And we need to guard our intentions. Because I have known people in churches in the past, not here, who have given large sums of money in order to make a statement or to gain in influence in the church as if they have a special dispensation than others because of what they give. And didn't Jesus say that we ought to give and not to let our right hand know what our left hand is doing? So when we give, we should do it secretly because those of us who give in secret are then rewarded by the gift that we give. Now granted, you've got to give it to somebody. But I, I guarantee you, I do not know what people give in this church. I remember a couple of years ago, I was talking to somebody who still goes to church here, to, you know, still goes to church here, and they wanted to know, you know, well, they tried to explain how they give, and they give quarterly, and like, I should know that, and I said, I don't know that. <laughs> I don't want to know that. I've had pastors that have made mistakes, that have looked at contribution records of people in the church, not only have they grown disappointment, that has caused problems for them in the church. No one answers to the pastor, the preacher, to the staff, or the finance committee, we answer to God. And it's only God who should see what we give. Number three, it needs to be submissive giving. A submissive giving meaning that we give what God asks us. We give according to his will. While the tithe is something that God deserves and he demands from us, there are other contributions called offerings that we should give and God should lead us and we should never ever give for any other reason other than the leadership of the Spirit of God leading us to do so. Which leads me to the fourth thing, our giving should be spontaneous. Never give out of guilt. Never give out of guilt. Guilt is not the motivator of the Holy Spirit. Do not give out of guilt. Do not give out of coercion. Do not give out of manipulation. But give because the Spirit of God has led you to give. And you're giving scripturally, spiritually, and being submissive to Him. And then lastly, be sacrificial. I think it's important that we give equal sacrifice 
in our contribution and our giving to kingdom work. Some of us could give more than we're giving and not feel a pinch. Some of us are giving more than we, we can afford to give and we're feeling the pinch. Some of us are not giving at all. But if you're a disciple of Christ, do we have an option? For the Apostle Paul said it very clearly in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. Look at the scripture on the screen. What does he say? I have been crucified with Christ, for I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. If we've been crucified with Christ and we are mimicking the characteristics of Christ because we no longer live but Christ lives in me, how did he love and how did he give? Then how should we love and how should we give? And if we've truly died to this life and left everything to follow Christ, then why after that decision do we always come back and try to pick things up and then take them with us? after we placed our faith and trust in Jesus. As a disciple, I think we ought to admit and understand he deserves better from us, doesn't he? I wonder how many widows, and I don't mean literal widows, but how many widows do we have in our giving in our church? And I wonder what God is calling us to give, not just financially, but through our service and through the mission of spreading the gospel to a lost community. And if you've heard only money today, you've heard the wrong message. Because Christ is not after your money. I'm not after your money. But he's after everything. And I wonder, have I surrendered my everything. Did you notice something in the sentence, the question? What's wrong with that sentence? Somebody tell me. A little lie, isn't it? What did John the Baptist say? I must decrease and he must increase. And once he begins to increase and we become to reflect and become more and more reflect his character and his nature, we will love deeper and we will give greater than ever before. Let's pray.
This morning, we get to praise God for another act of redemption. And I want to introduce to you all Denise. Denise has been coming for some time here at Emmanuel. And last Sunday morning, after the worship service, in her words, she said, I've been a fan of God for a long, long time, but I've never been a true follower. So last Sunday morning, after the worship service, she met with Patty Bosley and uh, together they prayed and Denise asked Christ to come into our heart to be her savior and her boss. Denise, do you know that you have asked Christ to come into your heart to be your savior and your boss and have you moved from a fan to a follower of Christ? Because of that decision, it's my privilege this morning to get to baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, buried with Christ in baptism and we're raised to walk in newness of life. Thank you.